0: Welcome to How To Academia. (laughs) Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. I guess this episode is Kelly Richards. Kelly is an associate professor at QUT in the School of Justice. I'll let her introduce herself, but to give you an overview, her research looks at vitally important topics in criminology, including young people's experiences of the criminal justice system, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander justice-related matters, restorative justice, and sexual violence. In this episode, Kelly and Jody chat about a bunch of things like imposter syndrome, tips for uni students and what it's like to go through uni when neither of your parents finished high school. I'm also going to give you a content warning. Kelly talks a bit about what it was like growing up in one of the rougher parts of town in Sydney and later what it was like to be a parole officer. This includes mentions of violence, drug use and rape. It's not explored in graphic detail. It's mostly there to contextualise how this line of work can be pretty difficult and how to cope with it. Without any further ado... Kelly Richards.
1: So, who are you?
2: Who am I? For the record? Yes. So, I'm Associate Professor Kelly Richards. I've been in the School of Justice for over eight years as an academic and prior to that I was a senior researcher at the Australian Institute of Criminology in Canberra. And prior to that, I was a doctoral candidate at Western Sydney University. How did you end up in academia? I ended up in academia. Well, my interests were always law and teaching. So even when I was at school, they were the sort of the two career paths that I was tossing up. So because I'm a giant nerd, I famously did work experience twice (laughs) when I was in high school, even though nobody even wants to do it once. But yeah, I was kind of testing those out. So I did work experience with a legal aid and then I did work experience at a school. Yeah, so they were were always sort of my my two interests. Um, I didn't go on to study either of those things. I went on to study criminology, which I thought was, well, I thought it was the most interesting thing imaginable. And once I realised that criminology was a thing, yeah, the idea of law or education kind of faded into the background a bit. Yeah. But not that far into the background, obviously, um, because I'm still kind of embedded in of those spaces now. So I I studied criminology and really thought that I would go into practice. Yeah, it's funny because on on one hand, on one hand I actually wanted to be an academic because I really – Liked the academics who were teaching me at Western Sydney. I was so lucky. I had some great, um, I had some great lecturers there. Um, some of whom I'm still in, in contact with years later. Yeah, and they were just doing incredibly interesting things and were really inspiring. So I guess I had that in the back of my mind, but certainly as an undergraduate, I thought that's something I'll come back to later in life after I, you know, go and work in the in the real world. Um, so I graduated and I, and I went to work in the real world, not that academia is not the real world, <laughs> but uh, I went into practice. So I went to, I went to work for a women's refuge and I worked as a parole officer and I worked in community development all in Western Sydney, which was an interesting times because it was, you know, this is in the early 2000s, so it was the... The height of the heroin boom in Western Sydney, um, and particularly the area where I was working as a parole officer was in Fairfield, which is next to Cabramatta. So it was it was right in the guts of the, the heroin era, um, and those suburbs were were right um, in the guts of it. Uh, you know, I mean, famously, schoolchildren were being approached by heroin dealers just on the street. I mean, smack was just cheap and everyone was on it. Not me personally, of course, but my entire client, um, my entire load of clients. um, Yeah. So it was, it was fun and interesting times, you know, particularly, I mean, I was 20 when I graduated. I was, ridiculously young, and frankly, didn't have much of a clue what I was doing, and also looked like I was about fourteen. Um, so it was, um, yeah, it was an, it was a very eye-opening experience
1: working for parole. Was it terrifying
0: at times.
1: Um, it was hairy
2: at times. So most of my clients, most of my clients were very troubled people rather than being terrifying some of them were very lovely i mean i can still remember one one guy who was he was waiting for his homicide trial um to proceed. but he was a lovely man you know he had just been caught up in sort of marijuana production yeah, yeah and had shot and killed somebody in the the course of defending his crop um I had one really awful client who I can still remember who had been convicted of sexual violence, again, related to drugs and everything related to drugs. Yeah, he did actually make my skin crawl. He had raped a woman um, as revenge because she hadn't paid for her drugs. Um, So, yeah, the scary times were sort of doing solo home visits to some of these guys. But by and large, it wasn't it wasn't scary, it
1: was just Yeah, it was just challenging. What are you like if you're going into a situation, I guess, where you're fronting up to and the thing is with probation for all tickling New well, as you go in solo for home visits, like you said, how do you talk yourself through that, knocking on someone's door? Uh, it was hard to feel
2: like I had any authority, I think, was the, the main problem. I was obviously young and obviously a graduate. Yeah, funnily, this is going to sound really ridiculous, but I hate driving. Driving, <laughs> driving is just this one thing, but I've never been good at it. I don't think I ever will be any good at it, uh, and I get lost easily. And so, actually... It also, I wasn't driving my own car. You had to drive, you know, one of the Corrective Services vehicles, which were, which were huge. I was driving around in a Daihatsu charade. That was my own little car. <laughs> so then I suddenly had to drive this huge, like it was a Holden Commodore or something. With the Refinex? Uh, yes, yes, totally. With so no Google Maps. With, there's no Google Maps. With the street directory, that's right, yeah. And so for, for me, I'd be so relieved to turn up at some violent rapist's house <laughs> because I had found the address that actually that wasn't the scariest part of the day. The scariest part of the day was getting there and then getting back to the office.
1: I love it. (laughs) Um, So you grew up in Western Sydney? I grew
2: up in Western Sydney.
1: Tell me, because you're you're growing up, you go to school in Western Sydney, you've gone to UWS, you've then worked in Western Sydney. Tell me what it's like growing up in Western Mm. Sydney in the 90s.
2: Yeah, I'm a Western Sydney girl. So... Yeah, what can I say about Western Sydney? It's it's hot. Um, <laughs> from I'm from Kingswood, which is um, yeah, sometimes the hottest place in the world. It's excruciating out there. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, at the time you sort of don't realise that it's rough, but then in hindsight, it was it was rough. So I mean, in the in the nineties. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of drugs, as, as I've already touched on, but there was a lot of violence. And so, I mean, I was a little girl when Anita Cobby was abducted from, from Blacktown Station, which is about 15 minutes away from my house where I grew up. And, I mean, as, as you will remember, it was an extraordinarily violent death that um, was perpetrated against her by five blokes from various parts of Western Sydney. Um and in a way that was really when my interest in crime and, and sexual offending emerged. But it was it was also awful. I mean there was just a sense there was Anita Cobby and then there was Janine Balding who died in similar circumstances in Western Sydney. So there was just a sense that you know women were just sort of being plucked off the streets. And and that, you know that was my that was my experience because it was you know there was a, there's a very macho culture I think is what I'm trying to say so there was very much a culture you know even as a child and certainly as a teenage girl that um, yeah that you were just sort of on display uh, all the time and you know men and, and boys just wouldn't sort of hesitate to. You know, do, we, do the cat calling type stuff and the street harassment and, you know. Um, yes, I mean, that sort of stuff was rife. It may well have been rife everywhere at
1: the time. I don't know
2: if that's a Western Sydney thing in particular. But there were other forms of violence going on. So there was um I mean, there was a lot of domestic violence in my street to, to the point where my parents were approached by the police about using our garage as a um I'm not even sure what the word is, but they wanted to stake out these these houses, yeah, in our street where domestic there was domestic violence, but presumably also drugs. <laughs> and so they wanted to camp out in my parents' garage and they appear through this tiny window in the garage to sort of get intel on these, um yeah, on these cooks in my street. Which my dad was inclined to do, but my mum my mum wasn't because Back then, and probably the same now, you didn't draw attention to yourself in that way. And I mean, you know, the typical thing about domestic violence—you know, I don't want to get involved. Um, yeah, so we didn't let the cops <laughs> into
1: our garage, but you know, it I'm was a lost stop. opportunity for. No, a I know. I know. Hello, parents. So your parents, though, like highly educated, highly professional. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah.
2: Um, no. Um, so actually my my dad has a criminal record, not for violent offending, but my dad does have a criminal record, which I imagine has been expunged now, some time ago. And yeah, my, my dad's dad also did spend time in prison. Um, I'm still not quite sure what for, that's a piece of family history that I have to, (laughs) have to go and sort through. But no, so I'm, I was the first... Uh, I was the first kid in my entire extended family to go to university. So my dad left school when he was about 10. And my mother completed year nine, so she would have been 14. Yeah, my parents are not idiots, but they're not educated. And didn't have a particularly strong focus on education either. There was certainly no expectation that my brother and I would go to university. But I always knew that I would. Um, because as um, enjoyable as that life was in, in Western Sydney with the the drugs and the cops in your garage and the domestic violence, um, yeah, I knew from a really young age that I wanted out of that
1: and I thought the university would be the pathway. How was it, I guess, going to universities, first in family to do that? Did you live at home? Did
2: you, like, what was... Yeah, so I lived at home and I worked a couple of jobs and I mean, it was fine i was I mean I was a pretty academic kid, and I was really interested in the subject matter and had great teachers, as I said, so I was fairly self driven i mean i looking looking back actually, the weird thing I think for me is that when i when I first went to university, I didn't know where I would sort of be in the pecking order with the with the students and so to, like to put this into context, I went to a massive high school. So the public high school I went to in Cambridge Park was the second largest school in the state at the time, so it was it's absolutely huge. And so I was a pretty smart kid, so I was always at the top of the, the class, right? So I had no other, um, yeah. I mean, I'd always basically been the smartest kid or the second smartest kid in every unit, right? So, but then you go to to uni. And then you've got all these people from everywhere else and mature-age students, and, you know, as well. So you don't really know where you're going to kind of fall. And so instead of really trying hard to do my best, <laughs> I think my assumption was I would no longer be at the top of the pack. And so I would just kind of cruise along for a little bit and, and see how I went. And so I actually didn't equip myself very well at all in first semester. But given that I didn't put in that much effort, I did pretty well, and so then I thought, ah, actually, I'm going to be perfectly fine at doing this, and if I, yeah, if I put my mind to it a bit better, I could actually do really well here. Um,
1: And so, yeah, so that was a bit of a turning point. So did you, I guess, did your family understand you going to uni? There was, I mean, there was some resistance about going to university because,
2: I mean, the assumption was that as a woman, what I would do is get married and have children, so yeah, so in some ways, university was just seen as a bit of a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, there was there was, I mean, as there usually is, I think there is resistance when your teenage children, uh, you know, start to gain an understanding of the world that is different from yours, and start to speak in ways that you don't really understand. And yeah, so it did cause a, um, it did cause a bit of a shift in dynamics. Yeah, I was very fortunate because my brother, who's older than me, so he sort of left school and mucked around for a while. But then when I went back to university, he sort of got the idea that he would go to uni as well. So for the most part, we actually went through uni together. So we had a little support network. um, Yeah, cool. And, yeah, I mean, he was studying uh, some different stuff, but also some overlapping stuff around social psychology. Um, Yeah,
1: and so we we had our own little thing. going. What... I guess, what got you through the uni days? What got me through? I mean, I just really
2: loved it. So, um, for the most part, I mean, there's always units that don't resonate with you. I mean, I, yeah, I was I was working incredibly hard. I, I just didn't really have time to muck around. I was either working or at uni and, yeah, and just, just focused on getting the degree so that I could then, I mean I stupidly thought if you had a degree that you could earn money. <laughs> this was my this was my view of the world that just by virtue of going to university I would earn enough money to be much more comfortable than my parents had been but my plans were stymied by the
1: housing boom. <laughs> <laughs> Oh how we wish we'd bought that! I know. Us in Western Sydney. Like, <laughs> know, the, the irony. Is if I had just left school and become
2: a hairdresser, like everyone else I went to school with, I would now own a million dollar property.
1: But, um, but whatever. I regret nothing. <laughs> um. Besides, I guess a foundation for a stellar academic career. What do you think you learned at uni that mm. has been most significant to your life?
2: So I always say I only learned one thing at university. And that is to think critically. I don't really remember a lot about the content. I mean, you don't, right? Because yeah. you you move on and you learn new stuff and that stuff that you knew kind of goes out of your head. But for me, it's more about not taking things for granted and just really questioning things, you know? So you, you think to yourself, well, you know, people commit that sort of offence because of such and such and then thinking, well, do they? What's the evidence for that? Yeah, and it's, so being able to critically assess evidence, I mean, you know, we don't have to look too far in the, the current moment to see how important it is to be able to understand research methodology and sample size and, you know, the veracity of scientific evidence. Um, and so really, that's the most important skill because then you can actually take that and apply it to... Anything, you know, from criminology to, you know, vaccine hesitancy, though in the current moment, um, and have a much better grounding in how to make sense of information. Yeah. So for me, that was that was the only thing, and it's
1: yeah, it's been the most important thing. So you have gone on to have a stellar academic career. One of the most productive academics I know. No. Hundreds of publications. <laughs> it's not hundreds, right? thousands of dollars <laughs> in <Yep>. research <laughs> grants. Yeah, and clearly you are kicking academic goals. Surely you are great at backing yourself. No imposter syndrome to be seen okay. miles <laughs> around the social <laughs>
2: professor. Uh, no, I definitely have imposter syndrome. Um, yeah, I definitely have imposter syndrome, but I'm at peace with my imposter syndrome. Because I'm actually wary of people who don't have it, <laughs> I'm sure you've experienced this too. You, you go to a conference and there's people who really think they know what they're talking about, but sometimes they don't sometimes you know there are you know the most confident people who speak in very black and white terms get things wrong. And so actually, for me, I had this really nice turning point where I realized that my constant second guessing of myself and my constant feeling of, do I really know that? Do I really know what I'm talking about? Is actually good academic practice. I mean, it's in my view, it's actually the only way to be as an academic. If You're not constantly questioning the veracity of what you think you know and what other people claim to know then you're not really doing very good scholarship. So, yes, I'm a huge imposter. Um, I do suffer from imposter syndrome, but I've embraced it. I'd I'd rather, yeah, I see it as my superpower now. I, I I would rather have imposter syndrome than believe the hype and think I know everything. I think that's dangerous as an academic and dangerous as a human, to be honest.
1: What led up to the turn? You said there's a shift. What
2: led up to the shift? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was just through doing a series of projects where I had to question what I knew and and learn stuff that I previously would have thought wasn't right. <laughs> and so, yeah, and and then I, then I realised that hey, it's it's actually really good to be the person who's open to being wrong. It's you know, to be open to saying, oh, well, I used to think this thing, but actually now that I've got it deeper understanding of this topic. I don't think that
1: anymore. Does that not cause everyone to just disrespect you though if you are just shifting your perspective?
2: You? I don't think so because I think being a good questioner is at the heart of doing good scholarship. I mean, I think I think too it's easier when you're a little bit more advanced in your career and you've got the doctor title and you've got the associate professor title and you've, you know, you've clearly had some wins and people broadly know who you are and and respect you. I think it is easier then to admit that you were wrong about things or that you didn't understand things or to ask questions in a way that it's much more difficult to do when you're a PhD student or an early career researcher because then you're sort of acknowledging that you you don't know what you're doing <laughs> once you've got wins on the board you can acknowledge that you don't know what you're doing and it isn't catastrophic for your reputation because there's an objective reality about you know what you've already managed to achieve and, and produce and I think I think the other thing that was really important was when I was at the Australian Institute of Criminology I had an amazing boss Laura Beecroft who has been a massive influence on my work she probably doesn't even realize that and, and Laura's not an academic She's a career public servant, really. But what I loved about her was that she just didn't mind looking stupid. So she just didn't care if she was the person in the room saying, you know, with a bunch of people who think they know what they're doing. (laughs) Laura wouldn't have thought twice about saying, sorry, what are we talking about here? You know, I don't know. How are we all defining this thing? Or, you know, and she would start things. She would start sentences by saying, excuse my ignorance, but and then ask a question. And I've adopted that phraseology. I use it all the time. I, I yeah, hear you yeah, say it all the yeah, time. Excuse my complete so ignorance here, but and then ask a really fundamental question, and you do you do risk exposing that you don't know what you're doing. But nine times out of ten, nobody else around the table does either, and they're really grateful that somebody pointed out the elephant in the room <laughs> that you're all talking about something that nobody's defined, or you're all talking across purposes. And again, you know, she, Laura had had a very Successful career, and was quite kind of late in her career when when she became my boss and I was very early in my career, and so that was a really good yeah it was just it just came at that beautiful point for me yeah and and yeah has has really just made me not give a rats about exposing my ignorance I mean we're ignorant about the vast majority of things i mean there's so many aspects just in criminology that I've got no idea about. And this is a discipline that I've been, you know, deeply embedded in since the 1990s. And then if I think about my own couple of topics that I've focused my research on, I mean, I am just scratching the surface. Um, I'm just scratching the surface around child sex offending. And yet people would say in Australia that, you know, that I'm one of the leading scholars on that topic. I mean, it's... uh, Devastating way (laughs) how much I know that I don't know about that topic. Yeah, and that's that's why you know a lot of these public debates around to use the the vaccine hesitancy thing again. Yeah, it does make you realise, doesn't it? Because there's a humility actually in having some degree of expertise on a topic because you realise all the stuff you don't know. Whereas if you actually don't know what you're talking about at all, you don't even know what you don't know, and therefore you are very confident. (laughs) <laughs> it's what's it called the, the Dunning-Kruger effect I have no idea. Dunning-Kruger yeah it's two white men who name something after themselves you'll be, <laughs> you'll be shocked to realize it. but um no the Dunning-Kruger effect once you become aware of it you see it everywhere it's basically it's the less you know about something the more confident you are in your view of that thing and it's true right because the more you've learned about child sexual abuse the more you just realize there's all of these other Theoretical angles and empirical research that you don't even yet have an understanding of, and there's a humility that comes in knowing what you don't
1: know. I mean, one of the things that I appreciate about you as an academic is that you seem to just keep putting yourself out there. You seem to just keep—I want to say going, but going's not the right word. Like, I feel like you have this profile that you just—you keep putting yourself out there in situations that are not that actually require a significant level of courage, where do you think that comes
2: from? Um, yeah, I don't think it is courage. I think it is... Um, yeah, how would I even explain it? It it comes from not not wanting to be held back by being an academic with a working-class background, because obviously we are in a minority in academia and so you can you sometimes you sometimes find yourself in a meeting and you think, God, some of these people have got rubbish ideas, but I can't articulate my own my own better idea. Um and that, that kind of comes back to the fact that the environment that you grew up in just doesn't um doesn't equip you to, to do that very well. I'm not sure I'm articulating this very well either, but but I just always feel like, well, why not me? You know, I mean, the fact of my backgrounds, I mean, not, not only should that not hold you back, but in a way it actually gives you an advantage because, particularly in criminology, because, I mean, most academic criminologists have got no exposure to people who commit crime and... Um, you know, sometimes you read somebody's theory and you think, "Oh, this is really, this is really sweet," but it wouldn't. I mean, it doesn't really pass muster. Yeah, so I, th- I think having a finely tuned sort of bullshit radar actually can be a bit of a, a bit of a secret weapon. Yeah, so I'm not. Even, I'm not really answering your question. Why do I put myself out there? Look, I think fundamentally, fundamentally, I know that I can think about things in ways that are different. From most people, and so I, I do think that I've got something to offer, and I don't, I don't want the fact that I'm a bit sort of rough around the edges or or not the, um, not the typical, Fulbright fellow, to hold me back because those things shouldn't hold you back. It should be, do you have something to offer? And yes, well, I think I do. So, so the fact that I'm not um, really Fulbright material, so to speak, just didn't – it didn't hold me back from applying for for a Fulbright. I I mean, in fact, there's a level of anger here. You just just think, well, why do do other people get that experience in life and that sort of privilege and confidence that comes from, you know, having parents who have, you know, got doctorates or or teeth, you know. (laughs) Um, You know, well, why – why not then I guess is is just what i think i yeah, I also don't have any real sense of shame, so <laughs> just i'm I'm just not afraid to put myself forward and fail, probably because I've done it so many times that it's just like water off a duck's back now. yeah, I mean, I failed a lot of things and and survived but but also, I'm a very I have a really high degree of perseverance, so if i apply for something and I don't get it, which is almost always the case, of I'm the second chance queen. I just reapply. I reapply for things over and over. I just you know what I mean? I got my Churchill fellowship on the second go and I would have just kept going for it. I would have just put it in every year until they got sick of me and gave it to me. Uh or not or or until it became a joke, you know? That that also would have been fine. I just would have I just would have laughed about it and just thought, oh well that's your problem and I think yeah in a very competitive world you actually you, you just have to keep going for things and taking the knockbacks
1: and just yeah just rolling with it really uh in two minutes or less sure I have so many questions <laughs> in two minutes or less <laughs> so in two minutes or less who's your favorite theorist and why
2: at the moment it probably changes quite a bit, but at the moment I'm really loving Jack Katz. i actually, actually I've always really loved Jack Katz. Do you know Katz's work a very bit. very well? Yeah, so so Katz um I emailed him actually recently. Oh. He emailed that, yeah, Jack and I like BFs now, so <laughs> Did you fangirl? A little bit. Yeah, I fangirled a little bit. That's actually a really good example of putting yourself out there. I put him, I just emailed Jack Katz and said, Can you please? Um can mentor me on this research project that I'm doing that uses your work. And he didn't write back for about a week. and I felt so embarrassed that I was bold enough to email one of the world's leading sociologists. <laughs> but he wrote back and said yes, and that he loved my idea. And like again, I just thought, that's, you know, it's good that I have no sense of shame, because if I did, I would never have emailed him, and he wouldn't be BFFs. So I love cats because... I think he's right about (laughs) a whole lot of stuff. And his whole thing is that we have to understand why people do bad things from their own perspectives. And we have to understand uh, what he calls the phenomenal foreground of offending. So your background factors, you know, your adverse childhood experiences and your poverty, stricken upbringing and all, all this other stuff. Yeah, okay. That doesn't really, it doesn't really explain crime, does it? Because a lot of people have those things and don't end up in jail. Um, so not that they're totally irrelevant, but that we have to understand how those things are meaningful to people in in the moment, really, that they're committing crime. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's accurate, but also but wildly overlooked. You know, mm. I think criminologists and psychologists, you know, are really fixated on. What happened in people's backgrounds, which is simply always going to be a really partial explanation.
1: How do you feel when people fangirl over Kelly Richards? <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> never happened. I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> You're my biggest fan. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I am your biggest fan, Richards. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it you, really happens. Are you trying to get like you? I feel like you do. I mean, you are the most cited of any academic that I've ever encountered in undergraduate work.
2: <laughs> in undergraduate work,
1: and so, you obviously will not cited elsewhere. But like, you have a you have a name, and people you know who you are. How does that sit with you?
2: Probably a little bit weirdly, because the stuff that I've written that's most cited isn't my best work I don't know if you experience this as well you look at your publications that have been cited a hundred times and you're know, like that really wasn't my best day whereas something else that I've written that I feel is pretty groundbreaking is just buried <laughs> and nobody ever mentions it um yeah oh yeah I don't know I, I wouldn't say I really get yeah I, wouldn't say I get a whole lot of fangirling it, it is it is a little bit weird because you, you kind of remember you know like I remember meeting Chris Canean for the first time and and just being like, oh, my God, you're yeah, this person I've been sighted since I was an undergrad. But then you realise that those people are just humans and most of the time they're really lovely. Yeah.
1: I think that's the most contentious statement you've made, Kelly, that <laughs> they're
2: actually lovely. humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some outliers.
1: Um, but that's, that's for a separate podcast. Um, hot
2: tips for students. What are they? Oh, hot tips for students. Ask questions. You know, be Laura Beecroft. Don't worry about looking stupid. Just, who cares? You're not stupid. If the person asking the question is the smartest person in the room, so just ask questions. Doubt everything. So don't don't think you know the answer to everything. And even if you do, that answer is probably very nuanced. So, yeah, be across the nuance and be comfortable with with
1: nuance because there's always going to be some.
2: What else? I think, yeah, I think just... Yeah, try to ad- adopt a sort of um I call it Buddhist attachment, not that I am a practicing Buddhist, but like a if you can step back and, and view your life as a piece of performance art, you'll be less worried about humiliating yourself and therefore more likely to put yourself out there and experience knockbacks. Yeah, and, and you do have to do that. You have to you have to put yourself out there. You know, once you get the first big win, a lot of other wins will come from that and so just yeah, keep putting yourself out there and get them. The first, big win. Um, and yeah, don't worry if you suck at things. You know, I mean, I sucked at a lot of things when I when I first graduated. I just really sucked at everything. I was yeah, I started to think maybe I should just actually I don't know what I thought I would do. <laughs> work in retail for the rest of my life probably. But it, yeah, it's okay to suck at things. You know, everyone everyone's bad at at some stuff. Just keep going until you find the things that you're good at, and then yeah, and then pursue them really
1: relentlessly. And, Absolutely love it. Thank you very much, Associate Professor Richards. Thanks for having me.